On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we review the latest news, discuss recent issues with cybersecurity, review recent survey activity and experiences, and in our focus segment, we'll discuss governance and governing body meetings. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 127 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for March 16th, 2021. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York, and remotely from Queens, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're trying out this half at home and half remote thing. I can't believe after four years that we're, this is the first time we've had to do it this way. And boy, have we had technical difficulties. So uh, I don't know about the sound quality too. So let's uh, apologize to our audience in in advance here. So I'm here in uh, New York City. I'll be down here in a city pretty much every week for the next six weeks until uh, about two or three surveys are done. Yeah, I can already see the sound quality is going to be a bit of a challenge here. So we'll, we'll see how it works. We promise not to do this all the time, but this is the only way we can get this episode out. We've been trying for two weeks to get done and it just hasn't worked with the, the travel schedule and everything. But I do have some good news. I got my second vaccine shot. Yay. That was last Friday. Um, Sue's already fully vaccinated and you know, so that means that uh, everybody in the family has been vaccinated except uh, Rosie, and I don't think she needs it. And for people that don't know, Rosie's our puppy. So a lot of exciting things going on. You know, we uh, we introduced uh, the director of nursing boot camp, which is coming up in May. Uh, you can get information on that at the ASCpodcast.com website. That is filling up fast. Um, we also announced uh, in about two weeks ago the next administrators boot camp. You might remember that the last administrators boot camp was in January and uh, was very, very successful. So we have another one coming up in August. And we are still working on a virtual version of that. In other words, uh, the Administrators Bootcamp, both of them uh, have uh, virtual meetings, uh, but we're going to have one that isn't going to be uh, like, you know, a four-day conference. It's one where kind of uh, everything will be pre-recorded and you just go at your own pace. And then we also announced the Finance and Accounting Seminar, which will be coming up in 
July. So a lot of conferences coming up soon. You and I are going to be very, very busy. And probably the most exciting thing that's been happening is for all of our patron members and our bootcamp members, uh, our weekly uh, virtual conferences. Uh, right now, they're on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m., though we're going to be alternating you know, sometimes with Wednesday evenings at uh, 7 p.m., I think. We just haven't scheduled that yet. So uh, we've had some uh, some good conversations during those meetings. They're about an hour long, and it's just a, a drop-in meeting. Uh, if you're a patron member, um, you can uh, join this, uh, you know, any Saturday that you wish and uh, kind of uh, just ask any questions that you want to ask. Sue, it's been interesting. The last couple uh, uh, sessions we've had, actually all the sessions we've had, have focused on uh, survey preparedness. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I think it's been really valuable. A couple of the patron members are are expecting um, to have some surveys, and and it's been, I think, really useful for them to be able to talk to you and and get get your inside opinion. The thing with a, a podcast, of course, is that it's a one way conversation. But being able to speak to a surveyor about survey issues and and of course, not only as a surveyor, but also talking to me as somebody that's had, you know, I mean, we've had tons of surveys in the last six months. And talking to each other. I know that they can share ideas and, and even exchange information so they can, you know, talk about it outside of this setting. Right. That, that's, a, that's a very good point is that patron members are able to communicate with each other also. Um, so if you're interested in becoming a patron member of the podcast, go to ASCpodcast.com. It's a very reasonable price. And there's other uh, benefits, including uh, access to a database of information that uh, many have found extremely valuable. So, Sue, do you want to kind of give an update on uh, recent news? Yeah, I saw an interesting study. Um, it was actually published in the March 9th, 2021 uh, magazine, Anesthesia about post-surgical mortality rates being found to be increased for seven weeks post-COVID-19 diagnosis. So there was a large international study that included over 140,000 patients in 116 countries who had surgery in October of 2020. Both elective and non-elective surgery procedures were studied. Uh, most patients were asymptomatic at, at the time of the surgery. So here's the numbers. Patients without a diagnosis of COVID-19 had an adjusted 30-day post-op mortality rate of 1.5%. Those diagnosed with COVID-19 less than four weeks before surgery, the number was 4%. At five to six weeks, it was 6%. And at seven to eight weeks, the rate returned right back to normal at 1.5%. So I believe this is the first time we've had a really good guidance on the optimal time to resume procedures in patients who had a COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, although we, you know, we knew it would be smart to put it off. This really... Uh, targets the, the, the date to aim for. And these findings were consistent regardless of age, type of procedure, and patient fitness level. One note is that patients with ongoing symptoms were still at higher risk, which makes sense, of course. The authors noted that these statistics should be used as just one part of the decision on when to perform surgery. But, you know, having these numbers are going to make it easier for you to make an informed decision and, and decide, you know, kind of weigh the risks of the surgery to, you know, the benefits of it. So I thought that was Sounds like a pretty reliable study with that many people involved in it. Yeah, and I, I think what I would recommend is have this conversation at your medical uh, uh, executive committee or your uh, quality improvement committee with the physicians as part of determining what your protocol should be for bringing uh, patients back who uh, have had a COVID diagnosis. And it sounds like the data is pretty specific here that after six weeks, I think it was right, it was seven to eight weeks is when the rate returned to that normal uh, pre COVID um, statistics. So that's a, that's great information. 
And again, you should be documenting this in your quality improvement, medical executive, and all the way up to the board as part of a protocol. So New York State is now granting all public and private employees up to four hours of excused leave for the COVID vaccination. This is four hours per injection, up to four hours per injection, and it can't be charged to any other leave that the employees earned. Now, you know, obviously this is New York State specific, but they may be doing it in other states. So it's something to check into if you have people requesting this. And be prepared for uh, having to grant this time off uh, for them to do it and and uh, and paying them basically for that. And according to OR Manager's March 12th edition, the Joint Commission is returning to unannounced on-site surveys. Uh, starting March 15th, they will no longer be sending out emails or making calls to the healthcare organization ahead of time as long as the area is determined to be at low enough risk. They are still doing virtual surveys for those sites that don't meet the requirements. And in, in that case, there'll be a follow-up on-site evaluation like they've been doing. And it seems to me, Sue, based upon how much time I'm spending on surveys right now or you know, uh, attending surveys for our clients, that uh, survey activity is pretty much back to normal. Um, we are backlogged on surveys, of course. Many of our centers uh, were due for a survey during the pandemic and uh, were, in our case, most if I mean, many, if not most of our our centers are AAAC accredited, um, so they're still waiting to get that done. But it is uh, pretty much returning to normal, I think. And uh, but the surveys are are uh, no less intense. Uh, I just had one Thursday and Friday. It was uh, it was an excellent survey, and uh, you know, the same old questions, uh, the same old issues that you know that come up. But infection control, of course, is always in the top of everybody's mind, and you really need to be prepared for that. Let's talk about some uh, recent experiences. Man, one of our centers just had a, a massive ransomware attack. It actually wasn't the center. It was the practice that was affiliated with the center. And uh, the ransom was part of a, if I understand what happened, is Microsoft released an update. And then that update didn't get uh, uh, pushed down to everybody in time. And then a number of centers were, another number of places, businesses uh, across the, the world uh, were uh, were attacked during that time frame, and unfortunately, one of these practices was too. They asked. I heard a rumor uh, that they asked for over a million dollars ransom in order to get their data back. And as we speak today, they are still not up and running on their computer system. And the sad part about it is, so the practice's computer system is down. Their telephone system, which was tied into their computer system, is down. You know, their fax lines, all of those things were uh, you know controlled by the computer. And the surgery center is still able to do surgery because their systems were uh, not directly tied into the um, practice system, but uh, enough of it was that, you know, they're heavily impacted. I, I think as you, Sue, you and I were talking about this before, we just need to understand that this is the world we're living in right now. And we are so heavily relying on computers. Just look at you and I right now trying to communicate remotely using this technology. Uh, I mean, it's amazing technology, amazing capabilities, but compared to, uh, you know, the old old fashioned microphones and cassette recording, uh, this is a lot more complicated and anything can go wrong with it. Um, and uh, I think for our centers and with the complexity of the computer systems that we have now, the heavy reliance on it, uh, think about it. And also in terms of just not being able to bill. Um, yes, you got a lot of issues with regard to being able to do your medical records. And you know, if you have an EMR, uh, scheduling, et cetera, uh, perhaps even getting pathology reports back or any of the preoperative reports back can be a, a major issue. Well, that's what happened a while ago with another one of our centers or one we had heard about. 
where their problem was with the hospital that they yeah. were working with that did all of their pathology testing. So they weren't able to get those results. Yeah, that was a very similar situation too. That they, they were subject to a ransomware attack. It was weeks before they got back, back up and running. And they literally had to use their own personal cell phones in order to communicate with the hospital. And the pathology reports that came back were handwritten because they couldn't uh, do anything uh, electronically. It's just an unbelievable problem. So I, one of the recommendations I would have is that you do a disaster drill, an internal disaster, I guess you can call this either an internal or an external disaster drill, for what would you do if your organization was impacted by, um, you know, cyber attack or ransomware? How would you uh, react to not having your computer systems for a period of time? What would you back up into? Um, you know, things like, uh, do you have the capability to go back to paper records? And do you know who to call to take care of your computer system during this time? Do you have, you know, contracts out there with individuals that have the capability to, uh, to deal with this? And of course, obviously, the most important thing is making sure that you have security measures in place to avoid having a, a cyber attack in the first place and having regular checkups done. That is a requirement of the high tech regulations, the high tech high, uh, HIPAA regulations that you do have regular, you know, security checks performed to, uh, to make sure that, uh, uh, unauthorized individuals don't have access to your information, which a sideline of that would be a cyber attack here. So uh, definitely take this seriously. We are seeing it more and more. It's impacted our clients. You know, we have about 45, 50 clients. Um, and, you know, on a regular basis, somebody's been impacted in some way by this. So uh, just be very careful and be prepared. We've also had some uh, recent surveys and just a couple things that we uh, uh, kind of reiterate, I, I think. So sometimes we, uh, these things sound like a, a broken record, I know, but surveyors love anesthesiologists if they want to find some type of a uh, citation, because if you just follow, an, and I'm sorry if you're, any of our listeners are anesthesiologists, but uh, let's face it, the anesthesiologists are, are pushing the heavy drugs and uh, they're the ones that, uh, that are most likely to have some type of an issue with the pharmacy side. So with the anesthesiologists, making sure that they're, you know, properly documenting things, making sure that they get the consent before the patient uh, goes into the uh, operating room. Single dose and multi-dose uh, vials, I think the most frequent violation that we find is that if they're using a multi-dose vial is that they're drawing it up in the patient care area. If you, are, uh, if you have a multi-dose vial of drug and you're using it on a multiple patient, that multi-dose vial should not even be in the patient care area. It should only be in the area where you're going to be drawing that up. If we as a surveyor see that multi-dose vial in the patient care area, we're going to assume that you're drawing it up in there and, and you'll get an instant citation there. Uh, and by the way, those can be pretty serious citations simply because uh, there's that, that risk of cross-contamination with the patient's you know, where the, the vial is being drawn up. And, I, and so I, why do we even have to talk about this? But don't forget, you know, using that little alcohol pad and uh, wiping the top of the vial. You got to scrub that top even when you, you're just opening it up. And there were some questions about drills. It, you know, remember, if you're going to have succinylcholine, you have to do an MH drill. And, you know, it is just so important to practice that because it, it's a slow process. There's, you've got to mix up a lot of vials. It's really, really important because it isn't needed very often. So if it ever happens, then, you know, you want people to, to have some practice at that. And one point is if you do end up with your dantrolene expiring, um, keep that so you can use it during a drill. Sometimes pharmacy consultants will have expired ones as well that they've borrowed, that they've 
had from other other centers. And so you can use those for, you know, real life practice. Right. And don't forget to use the expired dantrolene, right, Sue? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we had a center that accidentally that had some expired dantrolene and in the excitement of the whole thing, the extra the unexpired dantrolene was used and that stuff's expensive. So it was a very expensive mistake. Yeah. yeah. They won't be doing that again. And then there's uh, always an ongoing issue with consents, making sure that you have uh, the uh, consents properly written. Uh, there needs to be a specific uh, consent for, uh, you don't need to have a separate consent for anesthesia, but the consent for anesthesia has to be specific with regard to the, the uh, level of anesthesia that the patient is getting. Uh, and that can be a check mark. It doesn't necessarily have to be written out, uh, but that consent has to be very specific. And remember, it's important to be honest if you have challenges. The surveyors are going to appreciate knowing that you're aware of the issues and you're, that you're addressing them. You don't want to try to make excuses or right. deny that you have issues. If you do, especially right now, things are very challenging. Yeah. And I, one of our recent surveys at a center, they are having a lot of challenges with staff and finances. And I think it was very helpful that that they um, showed that they understood that, you know, they needed to make some changes and that they were doing everything they could to try to um, improve what needed to be improved. Well, and, and uh, very specifically too, in that situation, uh, during the, the, uh, our preparation for the survey, we uh, looked into the credentialing and, and the, uh, the center had lost all the documentation for the initial credentialing of their providers. Uh, I mean, we spent, I don't know, Sue, probably we wasted at least a month, two months trying to find that documentation. And finally, you and I made the decision, this, uh, this doesn't look good. So what we did is we re-credentialed -re every single provider right from scratch as though they had never been credentialed before. Uh, we, backed, uh, we didn't backdate anything, but we, um, upon their uh, re-credentialing prior to us discovering this thing, we, we made the credential period go from that last re-credentialing. And then we did the same documentation that you would have upon uh, initial credentialing. And then when the surveyors came in, we explained exactly what we did. We said, sorry, we cannot locate that, uh, that first credentialing. And uh, uh, it did cause some confusion because, of course, surveyors didn't know how to document it, but they did in the end figure it out. But, um, you know, it was, it, let's put it this way, if we hadn't done that, it would have been a very severe citation. Uh, and what we did at least showed that we had mitigated it and done whatever we could in order to assure that all the, the providers were properly credentialed. So it went over very well, but you're right. And, and you know, the other issue that always seems to pop up is incident documentation, uh, especially uh, we have a problem in our New York City centers. I don't know if this is anywhere else in the country where the hospitals are very difficult about giving hospital discharge summaries. And uh, in some cases in, in New York, it's just impossible. You'll, I mean, you could wait years to get a discharge summary. You could send you know, multiple letters out, but nobody seems to care at the hospital about providing that documentation. So, um, and I'm sure in many other situations, there's going to be a situation in which you're not going to be able to get all that documentation. What you need to do is you know, provide or identify other sources of that. Uh, like in New York, what happens is the doctor um, it usually follows up with the primary care physician who might be able to get that information or might know information um, or uh, and, and certainly writes up, you know, what their findings were and what the conclusion was based on the information that they might have received, you know, verbally or through the other physician. So uh, whatever you do, don't just leave that blank, you know, don't, you need to close the loop. And I guess that's one way to end this whole <laughs> recent experience there is 
you know, we find when we take over a new client that a very frequent problem with incident documentation is that the only way they close the loop, the only way that they close out that incident is by saying the patient's all right. And that's not the purpose of incident documentation. What we want to do is we we want to make sure, number one, that the patient is uh, okay, or if they weren't okay, what happened and what could we do to stop it? But the other uh, part of it is what other things contributed to that incident occurring in the first place? And what could you have done perhaps to avoid that incident in the future? So that is what a proper closing the loop would be. Okay, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about governing body and governing body meetings. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So it's been a while since we've talked about governing body. Uh, meetings and the governance function in an ambulatory surgery center. And it's going to be one of the topics that I'll be discussing at the upcoming ASCA 2021 virtual conference. So I thought it would be a good thing to discuss here. And it always seems to be something that is a topic that uh, people ask me about, especially, you know, when we take on a new client. So let's, as we always try to do on these things, start with a discussion. Um, We'll talk about the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines. So the pertinent section here, or at least the section we're going to focus on today is uh, 416.41, section 416.41, condition for coverage, governing body and management. And the condition reads like this, the ASC must have a governing body that assumes full legal responsibility for determining, implementing, and monitoring policies governing the ASC's total operation. The governing body has oversight and accountability for the quality assessment and performance improvement program ensures that the facility policies and programs are administered so as to provide quality healthcare in a safe environment and develops and maintains a disaster preparedness plan. So again, there are many references in the conditions for coverage to the governing body, but we're gonna focus today on 416.41, which is specifically um, governing body and management. So why don't you uh, talk about the interpretive guidelines related to 416.41. Interpretive guidelines for section 416.41, 
The ASC must have a designated governing body that exercises oversight for all ASC activities. The governing body is responsible for establishing the ASC's policies, making sure that the policies are implemented, and monitoring internal compliance with the ASC's policies, as well as assessing those policies periodically to determine whether they need revision. The, regulatory, the regulation particularly stresses the responsibility of the governing body for direct oversight of the ASC's Quality Assessment and Performance Improvement, or QAPI program, the quality of the ASC's healthcare services, the safety of the ASC's environment, and development and maintenance of a disaster preparedness plan. In the case of an ASC that has one owner, that individual constitutes the governing body, although the governing body may delegate day-to-day operational responsibilities to administrative, medical, or other personnel, the ASC's governing body retains the ultimate responsibility for the overall operations of the ASC and quality of its services. The regulation also emphasizes the governing body's responsibilities in the area of QAPI and disaster preparedness. Delegations of the governing body's authority should be documented in writing. The governing body is responsible for creating a safe environment where ASC patients can receive quality healthcare services. This means the governing body is not only responsible for adopting formal policies and procedures that govern all operations within the ASC, but that it must take actions to ensure that these policies are implemented. Through its direct oversight and accountability for the ASC's QAPI program, it is expected that the ASC is better able to improve care being furnished to its patients. If condition level deficiencies are cited related to multiple other ASC conditions for coverage with the result that the ASC does not provide quality health care or a safe environment, then it is also likely that the ASC is not complying with the governing body conditions for coverage. So let's break that down a little bit because uh, there's a lot of meat in there. So I'm just actually going to kind of go back and and talk about some of the the things that were discussed earlier. So it, it does say that every organization has a governing body. Uh, if there's only one owner, then he is the governing body. And a recommendation that I have is that you, even if you just have one person, if it's just one person, we have we have one client that is exactly that. It's just him. And uh, a governing body meetings are just me and him. And of course, he's the governing body. I'm just there as a, an observer. Um, you need to write those minutes up. Even though you're meeting with yourself, you need to write those minutes up so that there can be some documentation as to what type of activities are going on. So I think that's a very important way to document the compliance of your organization with the uh, conditions for coverage here. I've said this a lot and uh, I'll say it again. We as surveyors, the only way that we can determine that you are complying with the conditions for coverage related to the governing body uh, is by reading the minutes. We are not there to observe the governing body activity, which is ongoing. I mean, there hopefully those those individuals that are on the governing body or board of directors are active and are involved in the day-to-day operations in some way. Yes, they've delegated their responsibilities to administration, but that administration needs to be able to contact them on a regular basis and, and discuss issues that come up so that uh, they're fully informed about their activities. But the only way that we as surveyors can see Uh, those activities is by reading the minutes of the the governing body meetings. The last part of the interpretive guidelines there talks about how if there are deficiencies that are noted in other areas of the conditions for coverage, often they're going to come back to the governing body. So that's, that's what causes 
the number of citations that you might have. Uh, we all know that when we're filling out a, uh, a plan of correction, sometimes we have to repeat ourselves quite a bit. And the reason for that is we might be cited for a particular issue, uh, for example, in anesthesia. Well, ultimately, the anesthesia department is overseen by the governing body. So a failure in, in the anesthesia department is also going to be a failure of the governing body. So that last section, uh, when Sue said, if a condition level deficiencies are cited to multiple other ASC conditions for coverage, then the result is that the ASC does not provide health, quality health care for a, or, a, or a safe environment, then it's also likely that the ASC is not complying with the governing body CFC. So take, take the governing body activities very seriously here and make sure you have good documentation of it. Let's talk a little bit about the survey procedure. So the, the interpretive guidelines also provide us information about what uh, surveyors would be looking for. It kind of gives guidance to the surveyors. And it says that uh, the surveyors must ask the ASC for information about the governing body. If there's questions about who constitutes the ASC's governing body, it might help to review the information the ASC reported uh, in the 855B application, identifying those individuals with ownership interests or managing control of the ASC. So... Uh, hopefully, you're not confused as to who your governing body is because you're having regular governing body meetings. But if you don't know that, um, you need to work on that pretty quickly because that'll cause significant problems during a survey. Surveyors are also asked to uh, ask the ASC how frequently the governing body meets and what are the typical item, items in the meeting agendas. So I recommend that you have a copy of the agenda available, copy of the minutes available, obviously, that those minutes are well written. Um, I've said this a lot before too, uh, minutes are so important. They're not something that you have written up by administrative assistant. The, the, the administrator really is the person that's probably most responsible for writing up these, uh, both the agendas and the minutes. And then the surveyors are also asked to, you know, um, is there documentation in the governing body minutes as to who has been delegated operational responsibility uh, as a manager? Uh, so you should have in your governing body meetings, and I recommend this on an annual basis, that you appoint your nurse manager, your administrator, your pharmacy director, your radiation safety officer, your you know director of quality improvement, uh, et cetera. All those major positions in your organization have to be reported. And then the surveyors also ask the organization for an organizational chart of their ASC management and ask who in the organization performs various functions, including human resources, medical staff credentialing and granting of privileges, uh, who manages surgical services, who manages uh, nursing services, who manages pharmaceutical services, who manages the laboratory, if that's applicable, but that even if you have a, a laboratory waiver, you're, you're, that's still applicable, who manages radiologic services, again, if applicable, uh, who's responsible for management of the ASC's physical plant. And many of our organizations are so small, that is the administrator. By the way, many of our organizations are so small that all of these positions that we just talked about are, are one person or just a few people. And who's in charge of uh, medical records maintenance, uh, who's in charge of infection control, who is in charge of the quality assurance and performance improvement program. Uh, and then the surveyors will ask to see meeting minutes or other evidence that the ASC's policies and procedures have been formally adopted by the governing body. And then also when they're looking at the minutes, they're going to want to see how the governing body assures that the policies are implemented uh, and of how the governing body monitors internal compliances and reassesses the ASC's policies. For example, if, is there any evidence of data collected and submitted to the governing body related to specific ASC policies? And then also when they're reviewing the minutes, they want to see other evidence uh, of how the governing body exercises ongoing oversight and accountability for the ASC's QAPI program. 
John, when we were asked to talk about the governing body, um, somebody actually in our, uh, one of the patrons had asked to have this covered. He was interested in um, finding out what exactly should be in covered in those governing body uh, meetings. Can you? Yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. And let's let's also start by talking about the frequency of those meetings because um, uh, you really, I can't imagine operating a, a surgery center nowadays without at least having quarterly meetings. I know um, the conditions for coverage do state that it has to meet at least annually, but you just can't accomplish all of those. Things. You can't prove that you're doing all the things that a governing body needs to do if you're only meeting annually. And then a second thing that I need to say is I, I can't tell you the number of times over the years I've gone on a survey and then the governing body meeting minutes were like a half a page long. There's no way that you can be meeting the conditions for coverage regarding governing body without having a much more comprehensive situation. So let's talk about what a meeting would look like. Um, first of all, obviously, you need to review the previous meetings minutes, uh, have a complete list of all the attendees and the time that that uh, the meeting started. Um, having meetings uh, remotely, you know, virtually now, that's uh, that is acceptable. I do recommend that you have that written into your policies, though, or your your bylaws that allow you to be able to do things remotely. When you say to review the previous uh, meetings minutes. You can just say that they were reviewed and approved as long as, as there haven't been any issues. If something particular was discussed that they maybe made a change or had some questions about, then you would document that. That's correct. That's correct. Um, you definitely need to talk about uh, the most recent uh, legal issues that you might have. There needs to be, that is a legal requirement of uh, governing bodies is that they document the legal issues. Uh, you're also required to do a financial update that can be, you know, if you have other people at the meeting that you don't want to hear all of your financial information that can be done, uh, you know, privately, it still needs to be documented in the minutes, though. Has to be a contract update. Uh, remember, contracts are usually signed by administration, but they ultimately are the responsible of, responsibility of the governing body. So any contracts that administration has signed uh, since the last meeting should be approved by the governing body. And there probably are going to be some contracts that go over a certain dollar amount that the governing body only is able to, uh, to approve. Uh, on an annual basis, uh, the conditions for coverage also require you to review all contracts to make sure that they are in full compliance with um, the various federal, state, and local regulations. Make sure that there's a section in your meeting where there's a discussion of recent changes and regulations so that uh, the governing body can implement any changes to policies as necessary. Of course, the best example of that was uh, during the pandemic when uh, governing bodies were, uh, were meeting on a weekly basis to uh, adjust to all of the, the various things that were occurring in the various states. We live in New York and you know we had a daily update uh, from our governor um, with his executive actions, which uh, required ongoing time from the governing body to uh, to make sure they implemented the appropriate changes. Now, one thing that I always like to do in the minutes is make sure that the financial discussion is not the first thing in the minutes, because that really leaves the wrong impression with surveyors. So um, we really want to have the minutes and the agenda reflect the importance of all the various elements that are involved in governing body oversight, which means that uh, the review of the quality improvement risk management programs, incident reports, things like that should be very early in that meeting. So what types of things should you be talking about? Now, I, I ask this when I'm, when I'm in front of a live audience, is it appropriate to in the minutes of the governing body say reviewed and approved the minutes of the quality improvement and risk management meeting? And is that enough? Well, the simple answer is no, because quite simply, if the quality improvement and risk management program 
uh, is doing what they should be doing. They're probably making recommendations or they should be making recommendations to the governing body about actions that need to be taken, uh, new policies that need to be implemented, any changes in their operations, et cetera. So uh, your governing body is going to have to discuss the activities of the quality improvement uh, meeting. Now, the, the administrator, of course, is uh, responsible for implementing all of those, uh, those programs, but you need to have a discussion in there about critical incidents. Now, no names, uh, no specifics, but what we want to do is we want to refer to the activities that occurred. Maybe there were three falls during the period. You would say three falls uh, in the minutes uh, of the governing body, and then what was learned from it. Did you have to implement a new policy, for example? Uh, also, your governing body meeting should review activities of the facilities department, you know, any new equipment that you've been purchasing. There should be references to infection control. Uh, there should be ongoing approval of the, uh, the various plans, including the quality improvement and infection control program. And there should be references to safety also, which is usually integrated into the quality improvement program. We mentioned earlier the importance of your minutes also documenting the appointments, the various individuals that have to be appointed, and also the appointment of practitioners. So anytime that you approve a, a physician or an anesthesiologist, the minutes need to reflect their appointment, uh, the privileges that they've been granted, and the specific time frame for which they've been granted those privileges. I did a survey very recently, probably about last four months, where the minutes didn't even mention the names of the people that were recredentialed. Uh, and that ended up in a pretty serious citation in their situation. And then, of course, policies and procedures have to be reviewed because only the governing body can, can approve those policies and procedures. And you need a document in the minutes, the approval and whatever changes might, might have been made at a very high level there, uh, or that the entire policy and procedure manual was reviewed and approved. So a question that's often asked to me is what really occurs at a board meeting? I, I think a, a common question that's asked is, how can I get my owners more involved? And the advent of virtual meetings has unfortunately made this, it, it's made it easier to meet, but it's been harder to get the governing body engaged. There's too many other activities perhaps going on around them. Uh, it's easy for them to uh, turn off their camera uh, while they're eating dinner or whatever and not really paying attention to what's going on. I, I'll admit myself, uh, you know, Sue, sometimes during our staff meetings, we had one yesterday for an hour and a half. I think I've dozed off, fell asleep at one point. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was there all the time. Trust me. But it is uh, a little bit harder uh, when you you don't have that one-on-one -on -one opportunity to meet with people uh, to truly get them engaged. So you really need to make the meetings more interactive. Uh, the toughest meetings that you could have are those where all the administrators doing is reading things off, things that could have been reported to the governing body in an email or uh, you know, by handing them a sheet of paper. What you want the governing body to be doing is making decisions, what, you know, going through the quality improvement activities and those things that are of a concern, uh, discussing the purchase of new equipment, the discussing equipment problems that you might have, discussing incidents that have occurred that uh, might involve physicians that you're questioning whether they really should be doing those procedures. Those are activities that need to be at the forefront of those meetings and, and the discussions. If you get them involved, you're going to find a lot more interaction going on. 
And then uh, sometimes you hear lawyers telling you that you shouldn't put anything incriminating in the board minutes. Well, you have to be careful that you don't put yourself in a position where you're uh, breaching the confidentiality of the Quality Improvement uh, Committee, but you're more, far more likely to get in trouble if there's no evidence that the governing body is actually taking responsibility for activities that are going on in that organization. So, so our governing body minutes you know, for our clients tend to be between four and six pages long. Uh, there's a lot of documentation in there. There's a lot of attachments in there. Uh, there's no specifics about any quality improvement issues. The only things that go to the governing body are those things that require ac action on the part of the governing body. What type of things should be attached to those minutes? That's a good question. I, I like to attach uh, satisfaction surveys. Um, you know, uh, it, you know, if the information is so, if there's so much information coming to the governing body, you know, statistics or dashboard should be included. Um, you know, the financial information should be provided perhaps in a summary format. Um, so some of the same things would be attached to the copy minutes. Correct. Now, a question does come up, though, sometimes, Sue, about whether the quality improvement meeting minutes should be attached to the governing body, and they should not be. The reason for that is that as soon as you attach them in a governing body meeting, then, they're then they are uh, subject to subpoena. So that's why you got to be very careful about uh, what is attached to the governing body meeting minutes. And it brings up another important thing is that sometimes when I go out and do surveys, all I see are the minutes and there's no reference to the attachments, even though they intended to put those attachments there. So make sure that you're uh, making a complete uh, package for every meeting that you have. Now, what we do uh, for all of our clients at Amateur Healthcare Strategies is everything that we do is electronic. So Sue, you're, you're a past master at this. You uh, take those uh, um, Microsoft Word document that has the minutes there, and then you uh, insert uh, you know, copies of the attachments to that Microsoft Word document. So in the end, that Microsoft Word document with the minutes is a complete representation of the uh, the minutes of the organization. You don't have to, to look at, a, at various attachments. It does take a little bit of technical skill to do that. Um, I think you're still uh, uh, learning because, of course, things change all the time and we're always having different types of attachments sent to us. Okay, hopefully we've uh, kind of given a good overview of uh, the importance of the governing body, uh, the requirements of the governing body from the conditions for coverage and some practical advice as to how to put together uh, minutes and, and uh, how to hold those meetings. So uh, again, I can't stress how important governing body activities are, how important it is to document those activities and how important it is uh, to follow up on any issues and make sure the governing body minutes reflect the approval of privileges for the practitioners as well as the policies. Let's take a short break and we'll talk about upcoming events in the ASC industry. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, Please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. ASCA 2021 is virtual again this year. It's uh, going to be April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. Uh, it's the same content uh, delivered virtually. I don't know how you can really say that. I mean, <laughs> the, the experience of a virtual conference compared to being in person is, uh, is very different, but they hope to be back in person very soon. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Center's annual conference and trade show July 14th through 16th at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando. 
The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers uh, will have a virtual conference on June 10th and June 11th. That's going to be managed out of our studios here in, uh, well, studios there, Sue, in Rochester. So uh, we'll have more details about that as we get closer. And the AORN Expo 2021 is August 7th through the 10th, 2021, at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. The Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Annual Education Conference and Trade Show is November 4th through 5th, 2021, at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's Annual Conference and Exhibits is June 24th through 25th, 2021, at JW Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I guess I forgot to put these in chronological order again. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, I know, especially since the next one is in May, <laughs> the Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgical Center Association's Joint Semi-Annual Conference and Trade Show is May 12th through 13th, 2021 at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia. Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November 8th, 2021 at, at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I know, so you're going to want to be there because they always hand out a Hershey bar at those, uh, those conferences. The California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting is September 8th through 10th, 2021 at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California. And Sue, we're going to be there whether they invite us or not. We're looking forward to it. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd, 2021 at the Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers is hoping to get together September 29th and September 30th uh, in Terrytown, New York. More information to follow on that. Those, uh, I'm just uh, giving those out as a hold the date right now. Um, but the, uh, we're, we're working very hard on trying to get together uh, in person. And boy, I think we all are getting cabin fever, aren't we? Wanting to get out and meet with other people. Yeah, I think it'll be great to get back in person and be able to go to some of these conferences. So, Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about the podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on, on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com 
We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.